RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy, as always, to have you here for this thing we call a podcast. And I want to start right out by telling you that we are going to be joined in just a few minutes by wrestling legend, uh, original member of the Nation of Domination, got to see the Attitude Era explode in front of his eyes, and he's going to take you right in the middle of that. I'm talking about D'Lo Brown and uh, what a story he has to tell, and I think you're going to be as uh, interested as I was hearing him tell it. So stick with us for that. Couple of uh, shout outs, so to speak. Want to uh, thank Joel Gertner for having me on his 69 minute eargasm podcast. Put me over like a million bucks before we actually did the interview, which was cool. And um, if you haven't checked that out, be sure to check that out. Also, uh, by the time you are hearing this, I did just recently sit down with Stevie Ray uh, for Stevie Ray's uh, uh, Twitter extravaganza and um, straight shooting with Stevie Ray is what it's called, and I'm doing that after we record this, so I'm sure that will be fun, because Stevie Ray is always a challenge, and uh, in a good way. And uh, hey, uh, my boss, P-Tuck, I woke up the other day, and he texted me, and thank God he gave me a time uh, cue, uh, so I didn't have to listen to the whole thing, but um, Eric Bischoff said I was cool, Jerry, so... uh, uh, he actually said I was cooler than Gary Capetta. Shh, don't tell anybody. But no, it's it's funny. Um, and he even said it on the uh, on the podcast that somebody's asking uh, Penzer or Capetta, and he even said, you know, I wasn't his favorite person back in the WCW days. I was probably way too paranoid and way too insecure about my job status. And I don't think Eric really liked people like that. Um, I think Eric liked, I remember Eric telling somebody, if you don't have an ego, I don't respect you. And it wasn't me that he told, cause he certainly wouldn't have respected me cause I didn't have an ego, but now I do. And now that he's gotten to know me with an ego, he thinks I'm cool. Uh, so, uh, but they, but, but him and Conrad did a, a shout out on the real estate thing. So, um, I really appreciate that. That that uh, so uh, be sure to listen to uh, that podcast as well. Uh, that that shout out if you want to hear it is on last week's episode at one hour and seventeen minutes. Thanks to the boss Jerry Pizuk. So, um, but I suggest listening to the whole thing. He's always a, a great storyteller. We had him on here, uh, and and he was great as well. So, by the way, if you want to go back into the archives and listen to that, I we also talk a little bit about. Uh, to D'Lo about uh, being on the other side of the Monday Night War. So if um, if you're new to listening to this podcast, I urge you to go back and listen to our podcast with Eric Bischoff from last year. It's very, very interesting uh, insight into the Monday Night Wars uh, from somebody who at this point is brutally honest about the successes and failures and why they happen. So, uh, but I thank them for promoting the real estate. If you live in Tampa or you're moving to the Tampa St. Pete Clearwater area, if uh, you're a wrestling fan and if you're looking for a realtor, uh, let's talk some wrestling and I can find you a home. So uh, hit me up and I'm happy to help. Uh, while it's a unique time in our lives for people buying real estate, uh, it's one of the best markets I've seen uh, in over a decade. Uh 
between uh, prices and interest rates. So not to bog you down on real estate stuff, but if you have the means, now's the perfect time to buy. So uh, give me a call if you're in this area. So I want to remind you, ladies and gentlemen, to follow me on Twitter at David Penzer, all one word. And um, uh, happy to have you. And uh, if you don't download the podcast, be sure to do that and spread the word. Tell your friends and neighbors. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, a man who got to see the Monday Night Wars from the opposite seat that I did. He's going to talk all about that in his entire career. I'm talking about wrestling legend D'Lo Brown. Welcome to City Ringside. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week on City Ringside. Man, I'll tell you what. People tell me, you know, you got to sit through the NWO and the creation of of WCW, you know, and the the, uh, Monday Night Wars. And I didn't realize until I started doing um, some some research for my guest, who's wrestling legend D'Lo Brown, by the way. Welcome, D'Lo. That um, you you got to while I got to sit through the the whole uh, one side of the Monday Night Wars, you got to sit through the other. You started at Freddie Joe Floyd. And within a couple of years, you had the Godfather. So uh, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about that because I, I, I've never really talked to somebody who had that perspective and who was there the whole time. So it's really it's interesting. Fun. I appreciate you coming on. Um, before yeah. before we start, uh, you know, we, me and you have hung a little bit. We've had a couple of drinks. Um, I've never mm-hmm. in my life, never in my life thought to ask you where you got the name D'Lo. But of course, like I said, when I started doing research, I, I, I found out where you did, got the name D'Lo from. And you know what? You probably told it a million times, but for those people who may not have uh, heard you on a podcast or a, a shoot interview before, if you don't mind telling it again, and I'll tell you why, because it's a heartwarming story. And right now the world could use as many heartwarming stories as we could get. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Uh, in high school, I had a friend of mine named Darren Lewis, um, and uh, he passed away. And out of respect, um, I asked his mom if I could use his nickname, uh, and his nickname was D'Lo. So um, it was my way of paying tribute to a friend of mine who, who passed. And so every time my name is announced, his name is announced. And as long as my name is remembered, he'll be remembered. So that's kind of how that came about. That is so cool, man. That gives me goosebumps, I got to tell you. And I knew the story, but that gives me goosebumps the way you tell it. Uh, do you still keep in touch with his mom, his family? She has passed a long time oh. ago. Sorry yeah, to hear but that. It, it, it's, but, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it means a lot to me that I was allowed to use the name, and it means a lot to me that the name is still known. Um, and, and like I said, it keeps them close to me, so that, that makes me feel good. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, I can't imagine there'll be another D'Lo in wrestling, so uh, it's going to be the one and only, and you're going to uh, uh, carry it and carry it for him, so that's great. There you go. I like that. There'll be somebody <laughs> named D'Lo somewhere again, somewhere. There's... There's like five fake kilos, one guy playing the NBA. But hey, anyway. <laughs> I, I thought in wrestling, I think there's only one D-Lo. Uh, only one D-Lo in wrestling. Yeah, so that's what I meant. That, that's my world. We don't, I don't worry about the NBA. Uh, so going from a heartwarming story to a um, maybe the polar opposite, tell me about uh, your start in Smoky Mountain Wrestling, working with the gangsters. I tell you, it was one of the most eye-opening experiences in my life, you know. Um, growing up in the Northeast in New Jersey um, and not experiencing the South in any way. And then all of a sudden being thrown into it with, with a, the guy with the gift of gab of new Jack who could make anyone angry just by his words, you know? Um, sure. And to, to, to be around 
in a territory where wrestling was still real. Um, and those people didn't take it as entertainment. That was real life. And to see it and feel it and feel the heat that, you know, from Jack talking and the storylines we were in and the people we were working against, you know, when you work against the Rock and Roll Express in the South, you're not actually going to be the bad guy. So feeling that heat um, was, was something I didn't know how special it was until I left that area and went around the rest of the country. I was like, wow, that's intense. That's really intense. Yeah, and Cornette didn't pull any punches with the storylines, man. He just dove right in there and uh, uh, with the gangsters and, and rock and roll. And how, how did you end up down there? I, I, from what it looks like, you'd only been in the business a short time uh, before you got that call from, uh, I would assume, Cornette or maybe uh, Brian Hildebrand. No, it was a little different than that. Um, you remember Balls Mahoney? Yes, sir. Um, well, he and I were at the same wrestling school, the Monster Factory. And that's the place where Chris Candido and Sonny came from. So Chris Candido and Sonny were down there already. Uh, Bald was going down to try to do a character named uh, Boo Bradley, which Cornette invented to um, work with Chris Candido. Well, Balls goes down to get the job, but he comes back up and he's getting ready to leave again. And he doesn't have a driver's license. So literally at the school, he goes, hey, anyone who would like to drive me down to Knoxville, Tennessee, I'll see if I can get you a dark match with Cornette and make it worth your while. And before he even finished saying it came out of his mouth, I jumped the opportunity. I was like, I'll drive you down. Uh, it was me and a kid named Ace Dart, and we drove down, get introduced to Cornette. Cornette, you know, tells me I have eight minutes, see what you can do. And literally from that, I got hired right after that. And I you know, <laughs> yeah. I swear, A. Starling has never gotten so much promotion. I had Crowbar on a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about A. So you you must have run in those same circles as uh, Devin Storm. Yeah, uh, well, Devin was more North Jersey, but yeah, it was, you know, wrestling at that time was really small, so you would be on the same shows with the same people. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been on shows with Devin Storm and A. Starling and um, tons of the guys there, you know, young Steve Carino, you know, guys like that. So we all came from that same little area. I wasn't planning on asking you this, but anybody that's from that area, do you have any public enemy stories? None. I got you, none other than the time they got their, their tails whooped up in the WWE by uh, Bradshaw and Farouk. So, oh, were you there? You were there. Oh, oh yeah, I was there. So oh, tell, yeah, talk to me about that. Cause I've never, I've never really, I've heard, you know, I heard that happened and you know, they came back to WCW and, and uh, I was real close with them and they kind of rolled their eyes and said, yeah, it didn't go so well. But what was, what was behind that? Um, from what I gather, because I wasn't privy to all the, the other stuff, like the match building, but it seemed like um, they, you know, public enemy uh, didn't want to listen to Ron and, and, and John and they had the big head. And they were like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And Ron, one of the stories Ron told me was, all right, we'll just see it out there. And when Ron says that, that's not good. And I remember them going out there, them public enemy doing their stuff. And then next thing I know, I saw the, the APA with fist of flying. And then I remember seeing on camera, Bradshaw has, I think it was Rocco Rock. He looks up and you see him nod and then he shoots Rocco Rock on the floor. And when the camera pans over, Ron is holding the metal steps with one hand and rams it into whoever public enemy's face. It was, you know, steps are not, they are not like, you know, forgiving light at all. Yeah. They're not gimmick. They're just shooting metal. So that lets you know the strength of Ron Simmons. And yeah, they proceeded to just whip that tail for, Ooh, 
eight or ten minutes. It was uh, it was it was something like it was a locker room sellout. Like the entire mo- every everyone in the locker room is sitting on one monitor watching this uh, this beatdown. Sort of like Mike Jackson in Atlanta, huh? <laughs> sort of like Mike Jackson in Atlanta. <laughs> yes, but everyone's doing that for a good reason. <laughs> wow, you know. It sounds like grunge, but it doesn't sound like Ted Petty. I knew Ted pretty well, and he was the level-headed guy who who knew the business. So I'm surprised that I would. If I if I'm uh, guessing, I'm thinking that grunge got the heat, and Teddy had to had to take the pounding. But uh, but uh, yeah, miss those guys though. But I never heard that story. So thanks for sharing. Getting back to uh, Smoky Mountain, as you know, um, Dark Side of the Ring had an episode on New Jack, um, yeah. and I believe you were on there as well, mm-hmm. and. Um, so talk to me. I've heard that from other people that that didn't even begin to scratch the surface of some of the antics and some of the stuff that he did. Is that true? There, you could have done another five hours on New Jack and not scratch the surface. Like, Jack is about as real as it gets in the ring and out of the ring. And, man, I mean, there are stories I can never tell again that I would never tell again. <laughs> um, just know that. Everything you hear about Jack is real, and everything you think you know about Jack is real. Anything you can talk to te- retell that uh, that that we might get a kick up out of mm, that one, I'll plead the fifth on because I don't want Jack calling me. <laughs> I don't forget, want Jack calling me. He's forget about him. Friends. Ca- I won't leave it there. Yeah, forget about him calling you. I wouldn't want him showing up at your doorstep. <laughs> Crazy. How about working for Cornette? How is he? Um, I enjoyed it because that's where I literally got my, you know, I, like I call it my college degree from wrestling, like, you know, being down there and, and, and Corny ran Smoky Mountain, like a miniature WWF, the way his TV was set up, the way he ran house shows, even down to the booking sheet. Like it was a mini, it was a mini New York. And, you know, I got one-on-one training with Cornette on promos and learning where the hard camera was and all the stuff that gave me the foundation to move up to, you know, to make it to the WWF because I knew all that stuff and I had to learn it there. Um, and that to me is a, 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 was a leg up on a lot of guys who didn't get to do TV at the time because there wasn't a lot of, wasn't a lot of TV. Like today there's TV, every company's got TV. You know, back then there were about, you know, five, maybe, maybe six companies that had some sort of TV on a, a bigger than just, you know, a, you know, a little city limit, you know, kind of level. So yeah, being with Cornette and then being around guys like, you know, Tracy Smothers and Ricky and Robert, um, you know, Dirty White Boy and, and Brian Lee and Chris Candido. Like, like if you couldn't learn there, that was a you problem. Like, it was so many good wrestling minds and brains. And then you get a guy like Buddy Landell would come in for a weekend or would get a small run as, you know, Smoky Mountain champ. And he's, he's giving out information and, and knowledge. And it was like, just had to sit in the locker room and just keep your ears open, your mouth shut, and you would learn. And, and it was just a great experience. Yeah, if you can't learn from Buddy Landell, you can't learn because he made more mistakes than anybody else. But you know, he was he was he was honest about them, and he talked to people. And uh, and, and at the end of the day, I think that's why he stayed relevant, and people continued to book him is because at least he realized. You know, I always tell my kids, I've taught them since they were small. You know, everybody makes mistakes. Uh, just learn from it and uh, and and cop to it, and uh, and don't mm-hmm. try to point the finger. I learned that lesson from Kevin Sullivan a long time ago. Um, so tell me about you go to. Uh, uh, WWE uh, developmental. Eventually, they give you the call you've been waiting for, and they talk to you about a new group called the Nation of Domination that was led by Ron Simmons, who was known as Fruk at the time. It eventually morphed into something different. But what did you think when you first heard it? Were you just happy to have a gig? I was just happy to have a gig. You know, it's like whatever you, 
whatever you give me, I'm going to try to do my best. At. I didn't care if they put me with the nation or, you know, if they put me with Takamichinoko, I didn't care. I was just happy to be there. Um, and then I was going to find my way. But I was very fortunate to be put with Ron because as I go back, if, if Smoky Mountain was my college degree, sitting with Ron in the car for three hours every night was getting my PhD. Like that, that, that next level of sure. learning when I got to do with Ron and he would break my stuff down one-on-one. So I was so fortunate to be put with him. Like I, I can't tell you, you know, as a kid growing up, he was one of those guys I idolized and wanted to, you know, inspired me to be in wrestling in the first place. So it was so cool to be there. And then I was not going to fail Ron, like whatever I had to do to, to, ex, you know, exceed everybody's expectations and, and succeed. I was going to do it because I couldn't let Ron down. So it morphed into something a little bit different after a little while, um, became more of like a militant group as they went into the attitude era. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what were the thought process behind that? Would, would, did they explain this to you or did they just kind of say, uh, we're going in another direction, follow us? Well, it was just the evolution of, of the characters, you know, morphing into getting, some, getting more heat and becoming, you know, a bigger part of the show. So, you know, I didn't know the whole creative. I knew... Things were changing when Ron fired when Ron fired the rest of the nation and kept me. I knew up to that point. Now Ron knew the rest of the story what was going to go. You know what was going to go on. He he knew the direction of where we're going. But I was way too young to get that much information. You know they just sure. said you know you're not you're not getting let go and everybody else is so be quiet. Exactly. No, the, the, there's a great point to that. Sometimes. Sometimes you, people aren't ready when in a young wrestling career to f- find out the whole story. It's just better yeah, off I'm, to know as little as possible and keep keep your head down for sure. Well, they had they had to gain trust in me to see, you know, hey, let's see if this kid can actually handle this responsibility. You know, what if I couldn't? What if I knew the story that I'd go out and, and blab to my friends or start, you know, calling sheet writers or something? They don't know. So I had to, I had to earn that trust. So talk to me about working with Dwayne Johnson, who's probably become the biggest star in the history of uh, professional wrestling and maybe the world. He, I, I, I seriously do think he may be president one day. Um, but uh, talk to me about him coming up. And, um, you know, you guys, I guess, are coming up a little green together. And um, uh, uh, just tell me about that. And when did you realize that, geez, geez this guy really has something special? Well, we first got put together. Uh, Rocky was coming off an injury. Um, he had hurt his, uh, I think it was his knee and he just came back off an injury and they put him with, they put him with the nation to, you know, cause he was a big baby face before that. He was, you know, frizzy hair. Right. Rocky, Rocky Maivia. Maivia. Yeah. And so he hurt his knee and then he, he was sitting home in Miami for a bit rehab. And then they put him with the nation to give him a, um, to give him, you know, a little place to grow and become comfortable and, and ease his way back in. But I haven't had the whole workload of going out there doing singles matches every night. And, you asked the question, when did I know Rocky was something special? To be honest, and I've said this before, no one ever knows that. Like, it takes so many perfect things to happen. Um, but what I did notice and what I saw instantly was Rocky's ability to prepare, his intent on getting better, um, watching him talk, cut promos, you know, because we would share hotel rooms back then because we weren't making a lot of money, full disclosure. Um so having them just in the hotel room cutting promos or bouncing ideas off each other while we're driving down the highway or hearing a song on the radio and going, oh, wait, oh, wait, 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 and, and catching a catchphrase and filing that away. You, you said that attention to detail, you saw there was something there. And then as it started to grow and as you saw Rocky growing inside the nation, it was like, oh, okay, all right. 
and, but the cool part was, let me try to keep up with him. You know, I didn't want to be left behind. Let me try to keep up. Sure. And then just watching him grow. And I had the best seat in the house to watch the birth of the greatest superstar that this business industry has probably produced. Oh, I absolutely, 100%. I agree with you. And uh, that must have been a hell of a ride, man. You need to write a book sometime. Dude, I, I got some stories. And those are good stories. <laughs> I can tell good ones there. But I'm, oh, I, might, I, I might save those for the book. <laughs> what, uh, do you still keep in touch with him? From what I hear, he's just as nice a guy as he was when he broke in. He's the same guy he ever was. I mean, it's it's no different. Um, his platform and his stage has gotten a little bigger, but he's still the same dude. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little uh, bit bigger. Just a little bit. Do you think, you think, I know you're sort of a political guy and uh, we don't talk politics on the show, but do you think the Rocky Johnson, uh, the uh, Dwayne Johnson will ever be the president? Could you see that? I I think he has the ability to, because of the, the amount of following he has. Um, he, I think if he were to turn his mind to a, a political, you know, be at political aspirations, he's smart enough. He, he, he's uber intelligent. So I know he could handle the rigors of, of, of running president. I, like I said, I know he's got a, a large enough fan base where it might work. So, yeah, I could see him being president. Yeah, you know, six years ago, we'd probably laugh at that, but it's a whole different era now. But um, it's, it's a whole it's a whole different era in the world of politics now. You're yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. Hey, so I mentioned earlier that you got a front seat for the entire Attitude Era, which is uh, yeah. I've never spoken to anybody who did. Uh, tell me about that. Tell me about the transformation. I know that at that one point when you probably first got there, um, you guys weren't doing as well against WCW and, and eventually slowly built your way back to where you were kicking our ass after a while. Uh, ha, ha, talk to me about that. Yeah, it was um, when I first got there, we were doing TV and, you know, maybe a quarter of the arena was full. Like you'd fill up the opposite of the hard cam and you would have what we call the tarp monster, which was that black tarp that would cover up all the empty seats. So you couldn't see it. It was, it was just the background. And, you know, WCW, like you said, was kicking our tail. And, you know, there was a general, like, we're going out there doing our job, but, you know, no one's noticing, no one's paying attention. And then there was that shift in the company where we went from cartoony to an aggressive edge. That's kind of like when the nation changed over. That's when DX happened. That's when, you know, Stone Cold was whipping ass, you know? So slowly it started to build. And slowly you go to TV and that tarp monster was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more people were showing up. It was like, whoa, there, there's something happening right now. You could, you could feel it. You could feel momentum. Like you come to work and you're like the anticipation of how many people are going to be there and what kind of reaction we're going to get. And then I remember a time when, like, I remember going to Mass Square Garden one month and because we went to the garden every month. That was, that was a staple. I remember going one month and it was, you know, it was half full. And then the next month we went there, and everyone was jumping up and down because we did a million dollars on the gate and it had not been done up until that point. And then I remember like four months later, people were disappointed that we didn't do $2 million because like we're on such a roll. And that's when, you know, that's when it just took off. You could feel it first in New York City, like I said, but it just took off and everywhere we went was sold out. We were literally, you know, life, you know, living rock stars. Um, there were times you could just throw the, the WWF WWE logo on a on a billboard of a building without advertising the card at all, and the show would sell out. Just boom. And it was just it was amazing to be we were, we crossed over to pop culture. It, it's funny when you you walk through an I remember walking through an airport in London and we go down through the secret pathway 
you know, not the general thing, like, you know, down where kings and queens walk. And as we're walking, there's one dude walking with a security guard. And he walks up, and you look at him, and it's Will Smith. And he goes, hey, dudes, love what you doing? And I'm like, that's Will freaking Smith who just put us over. <laughs> like, that's Will Smith who just put us over. Like, it was, it was, it was crazy big. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was such a, it was a fun-ass ride. It was a fun-ass ride. It's so funny because what you described is the exact ride that I went on, but in the opposite order. Uh, but, but yeah, all the way down to the tart, tart monster, man. Uh, <laughs> same thing, but then see the roller coaster eventually came down. Uh, and, and, uh, and I know that WWE, uh, you know, has had his ups and downs since then, but yeah, same exact story went from zero to hero in, uh, in no time. And you could just feel it. Uh, you can just feel it every time you walked into a building. Uh, mm-hmm. how much, how much were you aware as a, as a wrestler of the WCW and the Monday night wars? Oh, tons. We were, we were right on it. I mean, we knew, and, and it was very known. We weren't wrestling against our opponent. It was our opponent and I wrestling the other channel and whoever was in the ring during that same segment. And I'm pretty sure it was the same down there for you guys. We paid attention to everything you guys did because we wanted to know, you know, we would get minute by minute breakdowns. And if you didn't perform, you didn't go back on the show. They're going to find someone else to try to put you in, put in that spot to, to make those numbers. So we're, we're well aware of WCW and, and the counter programming, like what you guys were doing compared to what we were doing literally minute by minute. Did, did you guys have the show on in the truck uh, when you guys were doing raw live? Cause I know we did in our truck to monitor we, the commercial. Had, there was a couple times we'd have a separate monitor and it would be sitting over in another corner. You could go sit, you could bounce back and forth. So yeah, we mean, it was there. Yeah, I mean, they got so crazy in WCW that if you guys were in commercial break, we wouldn't take a commercial break. And we'd only take commercial break when you guys were. I, I forget what it was, but it was it was it got to the point. Actually, it was a little bit silly. Um, you mentioned, you know, the whole attitude era taking off uh, from looking from afar to me. That really was uh, solidified when Vince McMahon became the heel character, Mr. McMahon. How much of that yeah. do you think? Because it gave Steve Austin something to play off and it and it, and it was going off of a real life situation where, you know, Brett screwed Brett and, you know, Brett mm-hmm. came over to WCW. How, how much of that do you think is accurate? And, you know, um, uh, do you think that if Vince had never uh, taken ownership of that character that you might not have gotten to where you got? I think it's, it's part and parcel. Like the Austin McMahon feud is one of the backbones of what elevated the attitude there. I mean, Vince had become such a big heel after the whole, you know, Montreal screw job thing that it was just, it was a good transition to use that heat in the ring. And then I don't care how big of a face you are. If you don't have an equally big heel, it won't last. And Vince was just as big as heel as Steve Austin was a baby face. And those two playing off each other. And then the real life story that everybody wanted to do, like who didn't want to go to work and give their boss the middle finger, you know, sure. think about that. So everyone got to live vicariously through Steve and everyone had antagonists and protagonist was their boss. You know, it's like, yes, I can see myself doing that. Now, I think that's one of the reasons why we took off like lightning and because and, everyone could live vicariously through either Steve or through Vince. And then when you, when you tuned into that, then you got the nation, you got DX, you got the rock growing up in, right in front of your eyes. You got the entire roster up and down. And people were like, man, these, there's, there's something to this program. Like even the guys that don't know are good. Let me get to know them. You know, not only was it top to bottom solid, I think that's what that's what really helped us is that our roster was, you know, was really deep and top to bottom was solid as hell. And and any every, the storylines 
all made everybody relevant and no one was like left behind in terms of you didn't just have two guys there that no one cared about like everyone had somebody in the audience that was invested who was in the ring yeah i remember uh watching because we used to watch raw at the bar after nitro when we go to the back to the bar because uh, you guys would have a replay or uh and uh or they'd tape it they'd have the hotel tape it i forget exactly um and uh when i never thought that it was the end of, of wcw i never saw it that way until much later but i remember when uh mr mcmahon embraced that whole bret hart uh heel character and i said to myself i'm not trying to pat myself on the back because i'm sure everybody else did but i said to myself oh shit they got something going right now that might be pretty good and uh, yeah. hey, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but, you know, we hear a lot about Vince Russo being the person behind uh, the Attitude Era. Do you know at all how much Vince Russo was part of that? Uh, was it was it his brainchild? Was it uh, him that being edited by Vince? How much of that is real is, is correct? Um, Russo was a really big. I mean, it was a lot of his vision, the edginess, the let's throw a bunch of stuff up there and see what what sticks, you know, kind of creativeness and so he's 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 really responsible a lot for a lot of the attitude error and i give i give the devil his due because he took the he took the business in a direction that i don't think anyone thought wrestling was going to go in because up until then wrestling had always just been pg you know it always it always been i mean you guys were a little bit risque with like the nwo um that was kind of like you know getting the edge and and kind of dipping your toe in the water. And I think Russo saw that and said, well, if they're going to dip their toe in, we're going to stick our whole foot in. And, and, and he went completely deeper. And that's how, that's how attitude was born. Were you guys worried when Russo came to WCW? Uh, I, I know I was personally, um, cause I knew. Boy, um, what a, what a, what a, what a, what a rib that is uh, 25 years later, but go on. Yeah, I, I was, cause I thought, you know, he was the creator, you know, all I grew up with in WWF, he, was Russo being the brainchild, you know, Russo being the, the creative force. So when that leaves, you don't know. I mean, it's like a good play caller in the NFL. You don't know what he leaves. Can the next guy step up and call the right plays in the right order for the right people to be successful, be a successful team? You don't know. So you've got to let it play out. But, you know, I, I think WWE survived. Um, they survived. Yeah, I think in that story, Vince is Bill Belichick and Russo, uh, Vince McMahon, and Russo is Mark Tressman. God, don't mention Mark Tressman as a Bears fan. God, that pisses well, me off. Well, he was, he was, he was, he was, uh, uh, the, uh, Tampa Bay Vipers, uh, XFL, um, coach and was, uh, absolutely, however bad he was, he, he actually, his performance with the, uh, Bears was like Super Bowl worthy compared to the X, uh, we had, we had great talent on this team, local talent. He just screwed it all up. So that's why uh, I, I, will he, I will say as a sports fan, as a Bears fan, we outthought ourselves. We could have had like I think we could have had Chuck Pagano when this and we still we went with Mark Tresman to try to be kooky and oh golly anyway so so you find out that uh, Vince buys WCW that's going away because I know I know how we felt on the other side but tell me tell me about the feeling in the locker room was it uh, a total victory celebration or was there a little bit of worry that all uh, you know all of a sudden our our competition has gone away. You know, it was it was a mixed bag of both because we're like, yes, 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 we we slayed the dragon. Wait, we got nowhere else to go. It doesn't work out well here. So it was it was kind of it was kind of both. It's kind of like, uh oh, the 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 you know the the, the places to work just got cut in half. Um, 
Maybe it's the greatest thing in the world. So yeah, yeah it was it was a bit of both. It's funny. I have we had Eric on Eric Bischoff on the podcast uh, last year, and I asked him. I said, you know, you were so hyper focused on putting WWF out of business. If you put them out of business, what was next? And he said, he actually said it was a good question. And then he said, I don't know. I never got that far. You know, he he, he was so hyper focused on winning. He never he mm-hmm. never thought about whether what he would do if he actually was alone in the, the wrestling business. And it's sort of interesting to hear from somebody like you who was on the other side, because, um, yeah, you know, be careful what you wish for sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but we he, all wanted to we all wanted to win. But no one ever thought what what would actually what actually winning would be like. Sure. You, you never you thought about the end of the winning, you know, crossing the red tape and and winning. You never thought about the two steps after that. No, absolutely. Obviously, you guys turned out better than we did. But uh, but but still, hey, hey when the WCW guys came in, um, I know that there's been folklore over the years about, uh, you know, how they when they came in, they weren't treated, uh, you know, right. Did you see any of that? Because you're pretty. Uh, you're a pretty level-headed guy, so I'm just wondering if, if, if uh, how much of that was true and how much of that was folklore. Um, you know, without, without saying names or pointing on individuals, yeah, I kind of saw that you you got you saw you were treated like outsiders, like um, like hey, you guys were top dogs down that other company, but you're starting at the bottom here and earn your way up, kind of thing. Where nothing, you're not you're not moving. It's not a lateral move from where you were there to here. You, there's a pecking order and you got to earn your way up into that pecking order. So yeah, I, I saw that. Yeah. And it didn't help, but other than Booker T, there really were no top guys that went over there. Um, I, I look back on this and I think if Vince just would have bought a couple of, of the WCW contracts, maybe a sting and flare, uh, just to put something on top. I think their original vision might've been able to work, but they just, they, other than Booker, they really had nobody, even if you had flair and Booker, uh, but um, but we all know how that ended. You left WWE not long after that. Talk to me mm-hmm. about that. Was that a mutual decision or was uh, how'd that go about? Um, my contract just came up. Um, it was expiring, and uh, we had tried to work out an extension, and it just didn't it didn't pan out. So um, we agreed to amicably part ways, and um, you know, hopefully the future would bring us back together. So I took it as um, a way of going out and exploring the rest of the world, and. That's what that's what initially brought me down to uh, to TNA after I left WWE, and which eventually led me to Japan, where I had the greatest time of my life. Yeah, a lot of guys seem to have to walk away to be able to to really get uh, be able to get back and be on top. I think of Drew McIntyre, obviously, because he's the most recent. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of guys that step away and. They're able to see, you know, the entire business and, and go to different places. And then they they come back and they just they get it for some reason and uh, and and make it to the top. So uh, you never had that opportunity. Why is that, do you think? Um, I, I did go back in 08 just for a short term, but it just didn't. My style at that time didn't fit into where they were uh, where they were trying to go to. So I was there probably six months and then went back to Japan and didn't you know didn't worry about it so i hate to even bring this up but it's part of your story and obviously part of your life um most people know the story about uh the tragic accident that happened with draws uh mm-hmm. you were the one that was wrestling him how, how do you deal how does somebody deal with that at the time because um you know let's just point out number one is every time 
these wrestlers get in the ring, they're taking a risk that something like that could go horribly wrong. And they know it. And, uh, you know, no, no matter if it's, uh, you know, 1996 or 2016, you know, that they're always that, mm-hmm. this, you know, that, that part. So, and I know that, you know, he holds no animosity, but, but mm-hmm. that has to be a huge burden, something like that. Um, I actually, I quit the business after that happened. Um, I remember I, it happened in Long Island and, um, that night I remember we had to go down and do a house. The next day we had to go do a house show in Trenton, New Jersey. And I was on that show and I was wrestling and I'm like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Like I was scared to do anything. Sure. So the next day I, uh, next day we we thankfully we were all going home and I landed in Florida and I told JR, I was like, I quit. I'm done. I can't do this. I'm, uh, it just, I, I can't live or, you know, live with the thought of trying to go in there and not have something else happen. Um, and he said, you know, let's not jump to any rash conclusions. Why don't you sit on it for a week or so and, and, and think about it. So I, I sat at home and I remember telling my, my, my fiance at the time, I was like, I'm done. We're, we're going to take the money we have and we're going to make it last for a while. We're going to segue into something else. And I was, I was completely out of the business. And then Jared gave me about a, about a week. And then he called me and we talked and he gave me the football talk and he goes, you know, he just walked me through everything goes, you know, you go out there and everyone, everyone takes that risk into their hands and they know what they're getting into. And, um, and he goes, let's not have two careers end on the same day. And instead of that, why don't you go out there and, and wrestle for you and for him. And, Oh, you know, then next week I was a back at raw and, and I, I've never, I'd never do the running power bomb ever again out of respect. I would never do it again. Um, and I just went back to wrestling. Now, I don't ever think I was the same wreck. Now, I don't, I'm going to say reckless. Like I would do, I would do anything. And I got more cautious in the ring, more careful. So I wasn't the same wrestler as before, but um, I, I, I refined my work to become more, to become more smooth and, and, and just went on about wrestling and, you know, talking with draws and, and keeping lines of communication up with him. I still talk to him to this day um, and him telling me it wasn't my fault or it wasn't his fault. It was just, you know, things happen. Um, that gave me the, the peace of mind to go back out there and continue the career. One would think that the talent rallied around you. I'm assuming that's the case. Yeah. So guys, yeah. I mean, Ron would call me all the time. I mean, guys would, would, would just out of nowhere, call me, buzz me. It, you know, they wanted to know, they wanted me to know that they were thinking about me and, and, yeah, it was it was a total embrace of the locker room. They just wrapped their arms around me. I mean, I was so young, and they didn't want me to just go sideways and just fall off the tracks. So, yeah, they, they, they totally wrapped their arms around me. So I read something that when you went to TNA the first time, I believe 2014, uh, maybe it was earlier than that, um, that but when you first went there, though, they wanted to drastically change your character. Actually, the quote is radically change your character. Um, I saw that quote, but I didn't say to what. Could you talk about what they wanted to do with the D'Lo Brown character? There was a talk, and it's when TNA first moved to Orlando, and they were doing the split shows between Nashville and one show in Orlando. So this probably was 2003, four, something like that. Oh, so I was the only, I was only ten years old. It's okay. It's wrestling. We all just skip decades. Um, <laughs> and the thought was to make me into like a Morpheus character from the Matrix. I don't even know and, what that is. I've never seen the Matrix, but I'll Google. Okay, it. yeah, Google Morpheus. It's uh, he's he's a, he's a badass, cool character. Um, 
but I, I, I wasn't completely down with it. I was at first, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, wait, I've been on national TV for six years as me. I get to keep my name. And the first thing you want to do with me is change me. Nah, I'm not down with that. So I eventually, that, that was probably what eventually led to us parting ways then was I, I wasn't down with the creative change into this whole new everything. I'm like it, it, to me, it made no sense to take a guy who's been on TV, who's been, you know, been in good spots and then totally change him to something else and who no one would ever know. So that, that's sometimes you just got to you know, move along. You know, you brought something up. How did you get to keep your name? That was really didn't happen back in those days. Because I, I had my name. D-Lo has always been my wrestling name, so it came with me from Smoky Mountain to WWE. So it's part of my original intellectual property. And uh, Cornette, I remember um, Cornette's response for it because I remember him vouching that my name was mine and um, they shouldn't change my name. And let's go to WWF. I remember the first time getting ready to go to the ring because before I was just a bow tie guy. I was standing in the back of the nation, taking bumps, wearing a bow tie, getting involved in finishes. And I was unknown you know, celebrity or unknown uh, security guy. When I finally go, they're going to wrestle. I remember them giving me a list of names, say pick two names. and That's going to be your name. I never turned that list in. And so when I remember walking to the ring and I'm going, okay, what are they going to call me? And they go from Chicago, Illinois, D. Brown. I go, yes, sir. And I walked to the ring and that was, that was it. That's and I great. let me keep my name. That's great. So the last, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last big angle you participated in, in the business, uh, was aces and eights. And at the time yeah. it seemed to be, a um, it seemed to be, you know, T, you know, TNA was, was always searching for something to get over and, and it didn't always work, but this, this seemed to work. This seemed to get interest from people that normally didn't care. Talk to me mm-hmm. about that, uh, about that group, about your participation of it. And, um, uh, do you, th- do you think it was, uh, you know, I know Eric is, is the brainchild behind that, and he was also the mm-hmm. brainchild behind the NWO, and, and people say he didn't let the NWO go, uh, uh, that it got too watered down. Um, do you think that it played out its course, or do you think he let this one get watered down as well? I think it um, it ended too abruptly. Um, oh, wow. I thought Ace of Dates was, was an incredible, you know, group, and, you know, it was built off Sons of Anarchy, which was the hot show you know, at the time. So um, it was a cool version of that. I thought the guys in it, you know, the bullies, the, the Devons, you know, Doc Gallows, you know, I thought those guys brought so much to the table and it was, it was fun to be around that group. And I was originally not supposed to be in the group at all. Um, when that group started, uh, it was, you know, I was an agent for TNA at the time. And so when the group was going out there doing some beatdowns, there's some young guys in there, Wes Briscoe and, and, and Garrett Bischoff, and they were young. So like their beatdowns didn't look very solid. So I, I forget who, I think it was Russo said, Hey, cause everybody's wearing masks. He goes, Dilo, put on a mask. Next time we do a run in, go do a run in down there. And then, you know, lead the charge and how to, to make the beatdown look, you know, look solid. And that's how it started. It was just me under a hood. It was the guy who's going to be a vice president was going to be somebody else. But it just somehow morphed into keep going out there, keep going out there, keep going out there. And then eventually next year they're pulling the hood off me and it's me and I'm in the group. And, you know, like I said, when it started, it was not the intention to have me written into it. Was Bully always supposed to be the leader or was that uh, was that kind of uh, done on the fly? No, from what I remember, Bully was supposed to be the leader because 
um, if you go back and watch old TNA stuff, um, it's like a four or five month dropping of, of Easter eggs throughout the show that always told you it was bully, but you didn't do, you didn't, you wouldn't notice it until after bully was revealed. And then you go back and look, you go, Oh, look right there. Oh, look right there. So bully was all, it was a vehicle always for bully. So, um, TNA got sold. It's now impact wrestling, totally different management for the most part. I know that you're involved. Um, I've been watching it lately. Uh, enjoy it. Talk to me about what you know. There's a lot of competition out there. It's uh, un- uncertain times with you can't have fans in the building, which is a whole nother story because it's a, mm-hmm. something that you never thought would happen. But it's it's at least it's the same for everybody for the most part. Um, what, what, talk to me about Impact Wrestling and 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 what you think. I I see, I, I'm, I I see that there's momentum that I never saw in TNA. Would it, would I be wrong by saying that? Oh, you're no, you're not wrong at all. I mean, there is such a vibe and a feel in the in the locker room, in production, in the office that you know we're finding our niche and we're finding our way. And and this is a completely different company that was a few years ago. Completely different management, completely different focus. And and we've got a roster of talent, top to bottom, that are damn good at what they do. Um, and I think, and not that it's ever a good time, but I think our shows have excelled in this uncertain times of, of COVID. Um, I think if you look at the major companies who are putting on shows with no crowd and that makes everything equal. So production value, everything's the same. Sure. It goes, it goes back to the core of what you're doing. You're wrestling your storyline. And I think by far we're selling at that. And I think we're putting on damn good shows. We're putting on damn good content and product and people will watch, people watch us and they're like, wow, I didn't realize they were that good. Um, I hadn't watched them in forever. And then it helped out. We, you know, we our switch to access, which gave us a lot more eyes on us. Um, I, I think, I think impact is doing some special things right now. And I, it, it's, it's a joy to get on a plane or drive to go to work, knowing that I'm going to help create some cool ass stuff. Very cool. Hey, you were got a college degree as a certified public accountant. Did you ever do that uh, as a, for a living or was that just, was that always a backup plan or just something you'd got just so you could say you got a degree? I, I worked for uh, probably about uh, nine months at, at uh, Fortune 500 company in New York. Um, and then that's when I got into wrestling. I just could not sit in a cubicle anymore. And I haven't practiced since 93. So I don't even do my own taxes. Oh, so you, I was going to ask you, so if, if you needed a new profession in five years, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't be a, a CPA still? No, no, because think about this. I have been practicing since 93 and tax law changes every quarter. That's true. And so my degree isn't even worth the lambskin that it's printed on. That is true. I, uh, I, I, before I did my taxes this year, they, um, I wanted to do them early, and uh, my my tax guy was like, "I need to read over all the changes that they made. Give me a couple of, <laughs> give me yeah, a month it, or two." <laughs> tax, taxes, tax laws change. It changes with whatever administration's in, whatever your local city government's doing. It, it, it yeah, I, I I couldn't tell you thing one about taxes now, other than I have to file them. That's interesting. Hey, um, you're involved in talent relations and, and as a producer for Impact Wrestling, what would you what advice would you give to a young wrestler or that you may give to young wrestlers that go come into Impact or are coming into the business that that uh, that things that you learned along the way? Because it seems like like you really uh, had an even keeled ride other than one horrible tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 
it's find your niche. Um, when you get into a locker room, keep your eyes open, your mouth shut, and learn. The, the vets that are around you are there for a reason. And eventually one day you want to be them. So you, you need to just watch them, take advantage of being next to them and, and getting advice from them. And then, you know, find that thing that's going to make you different. Find that something, find that character, find that look, find that thing that's going to put eyeballs on you that's going to want to make, you know, the boys work with you, the office want to, you know, push you in a different direction. Um, be unique uh, and, and just, like, be a professional. Act like one, dress like one, work like one, be a good person in the locker room. Those things go a long, long way. Um, there, are very few, there are very few cases of, of a-holes making a living in this business anymore. So uh, it's it, it, be a good person. There were some, though, weren't there? Funny about oh, that. Oh, there's been some, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> talent, talent will will put you above a lot of people, but, you know, that wears thin on people after a while. So um, just be a good person. Be a good Absolutely. person. It helps a lot. That's great advice. How how's uh, how's life getting? Is life getting back on the West Coast a little bit? I know uh, things are starting to open. They're starting to open up a little bit here. We, uh, for full disclosure, I live in Las Vegas, so I didn't want um, to say that. I didn't want to give that away, but it, you know, and, uh, and look, if you can find me in this town, then you're damn good. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, life is trying to get back to normal. Stores are opening back up slowly. Um, I think the thought is to have casinos open up, I think, July 1st. I'm not sure, but I'm, um, I heard they're going to be drastically different inside, like, you know, social distancing machines and gaming. And uh, I think the big rumor now is they're going to go smoke-free for the first time because, hey, we're dealing with a virus that lives in the lungs. Let's inhale something and blow it out so everybody can have some of it. So I think they're, uh, they're going to they're gonna go smoke-free, um, and hopefully, you know, we can get life back to – some semblance of normal. When you heard they were shutting down the strip, the Vegas strip, what, what, what did, what was your first reaction? That, that is, this is real. Like you're not cut the Vegas strip, full disclosure, everybody, the Vegas strip funds the entire state of Nevada. Sure. No offense, but it funds the entire state of Nevada. Um, and it employs the, 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 the industry that's built out here is 70% people who work around the strip work, on the strip or adjacent to the strip, you know, waiters, uh, security, hell, strippers. I mean, it's all built off of that stretch of highway. So when you shut that down, it's like, wow, well, they're not, they're not shutting this down for no reason. So now I need to pay attention to this because that's the lifeblood of this entire state. So I can't say the words that I, I said in my head, cause this is a, an interview and I like being PG. But, yeah, you can imagine every four-letter word that came out of my mouth going, I can't believe this. Yeah, I was telling my wife the other day because they, they've opened some casinos and some Indian reservations, and everything now is separated by plexiglass. I said, and I told, yeah. looked at her, I said, this is a great time to be in the plexiglass business. I'm in the wrong my business. My goodness, it is. I'm, I'm in, in the, the real estate. I'm in the real estate business. Nobody wants to buy real estate in a pandemic, but I should be in the plexiglass business because Vegas will probably buy more plexiglass than uh, than you can than they can keep up with. Absolutely can, right. Plexiglass is a bit strong industry coming back. Hey, thank you so much, D'Lo. Always a class act, and I appreciate your honesty and openness and uh, dropping by and telling your story. I appreciate appreciate it, Penzer, and I'll, I'll see you soon. Okay. Want to thank the one and only D. Lil Brown for jumping on the podcast and telling his story, and um, be looking forward to a book where he could uh, 
tell more of uh, the rock stories. I don't think you're ever going to hear a new Jack story, folks. Uh, no sane person would tell any, uh, any story that might uh, aggravate one new Jack. And uh, love to new Jack. Love to have you on the podcast, man. Anytime. Uh, feel free. And um, again, want to thank you for tuning in. Want to remind you that uh, you could have a new episode of City Ringside drop right in your lap each and every Monday morning. Uh, we interview wrestling legends, wrestling superstars, ladies and men, uh, announcers and referees and wrestlers and uh, producers and working on somebody from the WCW days that might blow your mind. So um, we'll see if we can put that together in the near future. But uh, all you got to do is to download to uh, subscribe and download automatically and uh, we appreciate your support right here on the radio influence team as part of sitting ringside thank you very much and we'll be back next week i'm david penzer still city ringside be good guys follow david penzer on twitter at david penzer also make sure to follow the show on twitter at penzer ringside You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is an MMA report with Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan. Quick fix on Radio Influence. Bjorn Redney only had one more event after Bellator 120. And then, you know, he was let go by, by Viacom. Scott Coker came in. You know, it, it's kind of, you, you think about that timeline. We, you know, we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, you know, if there's a 30 for 30 MMA, to me, I, I think it, it, that, that month time frame of everything that happened there. You know, I, I did a, a piece yesterday where, with Sean Wheelock as we kind of reminisced about, you know, our memories of it. I, I remember the, the conference call and, you know, I, I, they come to me first on the conference call. I don't know if it was my first or second question. I know that, uh, there was I, apparently some fighters didn't necessarily like my line of questioning, but, uh, you know, I asked Bjorn, I said, Hey, is this thing staying on pay-per-view? And which I thought was a, a legitimate question. And, uh, you know, and Bjorn said, no, they, they were going to stick on pay-per-view. They went with rampage and King Mo, uh, you know, it was marketed as being in Memphis, but it was actually in, in South Haven, Mississippi, which you know, basically about 15, 20 minute car ride outside, you know, outside of the, the Memphis airport, like, you know, and I just remember, you know, for all the Bellator events I've traveled to, it is the only Bellator event that I walked through the airport and I saw Bellator signage. Yeah, that it really felt like a time when the promotion was going all in on this fight card in, in a big way. I think with all the advertising dollars spent for Bellator, there was no way they were going to take this off pay-per-view, even if they had to run with King Mo Rampage in that main event slot. I mean... It's crazy to me, like the bigger story, more so than the fact that it was on pay-per-view and the fights we had, is that this is the tail end of the Bjorn Rebney run of Bellator. Because I tell you what, when I think of Bellator, the first name I think of is Bjorn Rebney. The MMA Report with Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.